The Mystery of the Supernatural by Henri de Lubac Chapter 9 The Paradox Overcome in Faith This mystery of the supernatural, which is the mystery of our divine destiny, appears rather like the framework within which all the other mysteries of revelation have their place. It can be envisaged under many aspects. It poses many problems to the mind. The original scholasticism was devoted chiefly to elucidating what follows from the fact that a created and therefore finite intelligence is called to see God directly, as he is in himself. No created substance can, by its own power, attain to seeing God in his essence. To see God face to face, to know him as he knows himself and thus to enter with him into a sharing of life and of love. How is this possible? Later, especially since the 16th century, a different problem came to demand more attention. If it is true that this vision of God, per essentiam, is nonetheless our destiny, it is therefore the supreme good to which, in one way or another, the desire of our nature tends. How then can it be wholly gratuitous? There is a second paradox connected with the first. We are creatures and have been given the promise that we shall see God. The desire to see him is in us. It constitutes us. And yet it comes to us as a completely free gift. Such paradoxes should not surprise us, for they arise in every mystery They are the hallmark of a truth that is beyond our depth. Faith embraces several truths which appear to contradict one another. It is always a harmony of two opposing truths. There are, said Pascal, many truths, both of faith and of morals, which seem contradictory and yet fit together in a wonderful order. Heretics being unable to reconcile two opposing truths and believing that to admit one involves excluding the other, therefore accept one and reject the other and think that they are simply doing the reverse. In saying this, he was not merely developing a theme familiar to the writers of Port Royal. He was expressing a conviction traditionally held by the church in every age. Even in the second and third centuries, the orthodox opponents of Marcion put it forward. Tertullian, writing to refute Praxius, declared of the dogma of the Trinity, not understanding that the unity of God does not exclude organization, economy. Simple minds are afraid of the word. Much later in the 14th century, the great theologian of Greek orthodoxy, Gregory Palamas, in a dialogue on the communicability and incommunicability of God and the things of God, makes his mouthpiece, Theophanes, say, As you see, O Theotimus, the most venerable theologians, Athanasius, Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, Maximus, teach us two things. First, they tell us that the divine essence is incommunicable. Then, that it is in some way communicable. They tell us that we participate in the nature of God. 
and that we do not participate in it at all. We must therefore hold both assertions and set them together as the rule of the true faith. Those who accept one in order to attack the other must be considered impious and foolish. In reality, they hold neither. They contradict one another or contradict themselves. Yet the saints have told them that this doctrine of contradiction is the mark of narrow minds, whereas for the intelligent man who meditates honestly upon the things of God, all things unite in harmony. It is precisely the same law which Bossuet was later to state in his Historie des Variants. Whenever two truths which seem opposed must be brought into harmony, as in the mystery of the Trinity and that of the Incarnation, being equal and being inferior, and in the sacrament of the Eucharist being present and being figured, there naturally develops a kind of language which appears confused, at least as long as one has not, so to say, the key of the church and the total comprehension of the total mystery. It has often been pointed out, too, that the various forms of Protestantism were often religions of antithesis, authority or freedom, Bible or church, and so on. The fullness of Catholicism always presents a character of synthesis. It is only that it is not an immediate synthesis, nor one that is humanly achieved. It is not possessed by the light of reason. It is first of all believed in the darkness of faith. One begins, as Bossuet says again, by holding the two ends of the chain, a synthesis indeed, but for our natural intellect, it is a synthesis of paradox before being one of enlightenment. The same must be said of each individual mystery, whether in its relations with other mysteries or its equally necessary harmony with the truths of the intellectual order. Love is the free gift above all others, and yet Christianity makes it a commandment. What problems that gives rise to? The Lord says in Zechariah, Return to me, and I will return to you. An excellent argument for Pelagianism. But we read in Lamentations, Make us return to you, O Lord, and we shall return. Which seems a good argument for precisely the opposite heresy. The church, however, does not choose. She keeps both texts and quotes them together in her councils. Similarly, if the Word is begotten, how can He be eternal? If He depends on the Father, how can He be His equal? Two unanswerable points for the Arians. But before going into the arguments, Hilary of Poitiers replies that it is better to trust the Word of God than the reasonings of human subtlety. The eternal birth of the Word in the bosom of the Father and His Sonship, which makes Him at once equal and subject to Him, are to Him mysteries of faith for which it is not surprising that we do not possess any ready-made key in our reason. Having meditated at length on the union of grace and freedom, and having given explanations which we today still find most illuminating, St. Augustine could nonetheless write, 
realizing the difficulties that never cease to arise. This question is as difficult to settle as when free will is defended, then the grace of God seems denied. But when the grace of God is asserted, then free will is deemed to be cast aside. And what theologian, however convinced of his system, cannot make the same admission? A century ago, Sheban noted, as we all must, two teachings in the church which appear to be contradictory and have nevertheless both been held firmly by her. We find a similar statement in origin. This was in regard to a different problem and one which does not really trouble us now. God, he said to himself, must be a creator and omnipotent from all eternity. And yet one cannot admit that any creature is co-eternal with God. Since the point is not important here, neither is the solution. But what is of interest to us is the universal relevance of the comment which this apparent contradiction inspired in origin to the conflict that takes place in the mind. Since, therefore, there is a battle between human thought, cogitatio, and intellect, intellectus, with the most valid reasons rushing to the mind on either side and fighting each other, and tormenting the sense of the contemplator, each on its own side. Always, after every attempt and every flash of understanding, once again human intelligence is dulled in this. St. Augustine also puts forward similar ideas about the same problem in the De Trinitate. William of St. Thierry, that subtle psychologist of the faith, also noted the hesitations of thought, hesitationis cogitationum, which must always accompany the thoughts of faith, fidei cogitationis. But he went on at once to reassure the faithful soul who undergoes them, urging that they be not mistaken for a different kind of doubt or anxiety, which results from a certain dishonest rationality, rationalitas improba that takes up an aggressive attitude with regard to faith. Once again, do not such statements express what is the experience of every theologian worthy of the name, indeed of every believer, as he reflects upon the mystery? Obviously, not every case is the same. It can happen sometimes that dogma, by forcing the mind to find out the truth about itself, delivers it from many irrational illusions and prejudices. It can also happen that the effect of revelation on human experience indirectly results in the formation of fresh concepts which lead to the gradual disappearance of the contradictions which were a problem at first. But though these explanations may well play a part, they are not enough to account for the most important cases, not fully at any rate. The only adequate answer must be found in the very idea of what mystery is. This idea of mystery is perfectly acceptable to reason once one has admitted the idea of a personal and transcendent God. The truth we receive from him about himself must exceed our grasp, simply because of its superior intelligibility. Understood, intellecta, it can never be grasped, comprehensa. The distinction is elementary and accepted by Descartes as well as St. Augustine and the scholastics.
How could one possibly agree with Malebranche that the word unreservedly communicated all that he possesses as word and eternal wisdom whenever we question him with serious attention? Or at least, how could one believe that a finite intellect could be capable of receiving such a communication in its entirety? Revealed truth, then, is a mystery for us. In other words, it presents that character of lofty synthesis whose final link must remain impenetrably obscure to us. It will forever resist all our efforts to unify it fully. This is baffling to a philosophy of pure rationality, but not to a philosophy which recognizes in the human mind both that potential absolute that makes it declare the truth and that abyss of darkness in which it remains by the fact of being both created and bodily. Either or, says rationality, believing that it can get to the bottom of everything because it makes itself the yardstick and thinks that its own limits are the limits of being itself. It accuses Christian thinking of a kind of hunger for what is absurd and contradictory, thinking that what is incomprehensible must therefore be unintelligible. It considers the doctrine of mystery to be a sophism, an unwarranted overstepping of the bounds of common sense and reason. The idea of the Trinity, for instance, or even the idea of an infinite personal God, is, from its point of view, a square circle. Throughout, it finds willful contradiction, systematic absurdity, logical errors, and so on. Or because St. Thomas, along with all Catholic tradition, professes that God is present everywhere in his creation, it accuses him of implicit pantheism. Limited and enclosed, this philosophy of rationality is a philosophy of the dilemma and the univocal statement. Contradiction is not distasteful enough to you, wrote Renovoir to Secretan of problems concerned not with revelation itself, but with the very being of God. His correspondent, he thought, was leaving behind the honest thinking of the philosopher to enter upon the arbitrary ways of theologians who try to lift thought above its proper conditions and look for truth outside the laws of understanding, outside consciousness altogether. The objection is reminiscent of certain theologians of our own day who hasten to speak of contradiction as soon as they hear phrases that seem even slightly paradoxical. In so doing, they reject any truth that surprises them without perceiving that to be really logical, they should be rejecting numerous other incontestable truths, both of faith and reason, which only fail to surprise them because they are so used to them. But Secretan replied to his friend, You think too little of synthesis. The contradictions whose terms are necessary certainly add up to a lacuna in what we know or what it is possible for us to know. The contradictions which we really cannot resolve mark the boundaries of our understanding. And returning to the charge some years later, you can keep reproaching me for bringing together the irreconcilable I, in turn, reproach you with mutilating the human mind. He was, in fact, making his own formulation of a doctrine which was perhaps most forcefully and paradoxically expressed by Nicholas of Cusa. 
I know from experience how necessary it is to enter the darkness, to admit the coexistence of contraries which exceed my power of understanding, to look for truth where there seems only to be impossibility. The place, O oh my God, where we can see you unveiled is surrounded by the coming together of things contradictory. It is the wall of the paradise where you dwell, and we can only enter it by conquering reason, which stands guard at the gate. Charles Secretan and Nicholas of Cusa were partly right. They were right to recall to the human intellect that it too is a creature. They were right to reject, as does St. Thomas, that intransigent conceptualism which sometimes seems to want to submit even the mind of God himself to its laws. But they are, both of them, too quick to admit that the contradictio that appears at first must always remain completely irreconcilable for us. They did not, perhaps, place sufficient trust in that superior reason, ratio superior, spoken of by St. Thomas and St. Augustine, which makes possible, though in a still distant way, and more by intuition than actual intelligence, a first contemplation of things eternal. For although we cannot yet penetrate the wall of paradise, we are not condemned, even leaving mystical experience aside, to keep what the scholastics called the mode of understanding possible to us modus intelligendi nobis possibilis, forever at its lowest possible level. There is certainly a middle term between pure reasoned affirmation of a fact and the positive perception of the how of it. The journey need not always be a direct one. A defeat forced upon reason may, in some cases, mean a widening, or, as Richard of St. Victor says, a dilating of it. For there is a flexibility in reason, as the history of doctrine shows, and when it abandons the narrow rules of too human irrationality and appears to be overwhelmed by the weight of mystery, something analogous to a conversion takes place within it, a kind of rebirth, an entry into a new world. To give a present-day example, it is surely this that Paul VI is referring to in the encyclical Ecclesiam Suem when he speaks of the many paradoxes which severely test the thinking of those concerned with ecclesiology and calls on them to see beyond them and resolve them in the experience, illuminated by doctrine, of the living reality of the church itself. On the other hand, as we have seen, while our knowledge is and cannot help being defective, it has at least that wonderful power that exalts it at the very moment of having to admit defeat, namely the power of self-criticism. It is never enclosed, never wholly bounded by its objective concepts. It can stand back, as it were, and judge them. The results of such scrutiny may well be negative, but even so, they are enough to remove the scandal of contradiction by enabling the mind to affirm the existence of an ultimate harmony even when it cannot see it. But they will never add up to a positive solution so clear that the mind has no more to do than repose in it. Pere Sertilanges explains this very well in relation to human action, which we know to be free, although it depends wholly upon God. 
Once we have grasped, he tells us, that God is the origin, the transcendent origin, which we in fact understand without really understanding it, understanding only that it could not be otherwise, no objection remains, and the co-possibility of the relative and the absolute is intact. Only, he adds immediately, do not conclude from this that I am claiming it as established. To establish positively the co-possibility of the relative and the absolute, one would have to define them both, and one of them is indefinable. As long as God remains inaccessible in himself, the meeting point of his being with ours and his action with ours must remain no less inaccessible. When it is between two truths of faith that the ultimate harmony cannot be seen, to choose one and reject the other then becomes heresy properly so-called. We have a series of classic examples of this in the great Trinitarian and Christological heresies, which are extreme and obvious cases. But even within the limits of orthodoxy, any theology too concerned to find clear-cut harmonies and explanations with no loose ends will always be in danger of upsetting the balance of the dogmatic synthesis by lightening the weight of one or other of the two apparently contradictory propositions. This is true of those systems which try to make the divine trinity in unity more amenable to the understanding by minimizing to the utmost the category of relation, which enables us to think of the persons by speaking of the extreme poverty of their personal being and by describing the three divine persons in consequence as being as little distinct from one another as possible. The divine persons, one notes, are wholly relative to one another, and in the scale of categories, relation is the ens minutissimum. It is true, too, of those other systems which, the better to safeguard Christ's divinity, so minimize the consequences of his incarnation that his human reality is compromised. The modalist or Unitarian tendency, the monophysite or docetist tendency, are, as are their opposites, the result of an over-eagerness to reconcile the contrasting elements of the mystery. They are the consequence of wanting to be easily satisfied, of seeking a success which would dispense one from seeking further. They are the consequence of a theology of pure rationality, refusing to transcend itself and thus becoming a kind of contradiction. But it is only from this formal point of view that we are concerned with them here. How different from this avid seeking and this overhasting arrival is the spirit of St. Thomas Aquinas, who made his own these counsels and statements of St. Hilary. Make your start, continue, persevere. I know that you will not reach the goal, but I shall rejoice at your progress. For he who devoutly treads an endless road, though he reach no conclusion, will profit by his exertions. But do not bring yourself to this secret, and do not immerse yourself in the mystery of endless interminabilis, truth, presuming to grasp the height of understanding, but understand that these are incomprehensible things. In a certain number of other cases, only one of the two opposing truths is a dogma proper, although both together form a kind of indivisible Christian inheritance. 
Here the temptation is greater in order to gain the desired peace of mind cheaply, to eliminate or at least water down, blur or neglect the apparently contradictory truth. This seems to me precisely what has happened in regard to the supernatural with the second problem I have just indicated. Theologians have come up against an apparent opposition between two elements which are equally stressed by the tradition concerning the supernatural destiny offered to man. On the one hand, the fact that it is fundamental. On the other, the fact that it is a totally free gift. Longing for a clear solution on the immediate level of understanding, they have allowed themselves to be guided uncritically by analogies drawn from social relationships or even from the material universe. Now, any reconciliation at this level involves some sacrifice. There could be no question of sacrificing the gratuitousness since it was a positive dogma. Therefore, it was the fundamental character of grace that had to a greater or lesser extent to be dropped. The result has been the speculation about pure nature, in a quite different sense from that given it by the scholastics of old, as we have seen, a speculation ever more pervasive and widespread. And where there has not been great care, this has even led to a certain compromising of the gratuitousness. It should have been realized, as Dr. J. Sestili so opportunely pointed out, that this apparent conflict between two truths of different orders was normal. Reflection should have led to a reaction against man's natural disposition to deny anything he cannot understand. These theologians had largely forgotten one of the first principles of traditional philosophy, that Whatever rationalist philosophers may say in their wish to limit us within the narrow bounds of their imminence, understanding is not the whole measure of human reason. That metaphysical reason triumphs only by breaking free of the processes of abstract understanding, and that such understanding remains subject to the spirit. Once again, this is a lesson that could have been learned from St. Thomas Aquinas. Metaphysics says one contemporary philosopher, is not a buildup of concepts by which we try to make our paradoxes less obvious. It is the experience we have of them and all the situations of our personal and collective history. This certainly involves some abdication of the intelligence, if it means a refusal to step outside the sphere of our most immediate experience, to seek a solution to the problems which that experience poses. It is in any case certainly true that theology is not, or ought not to be, a buildup of concepts by which the believer tries to make the divine mystery less mysterious, and in some cases to eliminate it altogether. To reject this idea of theology does not mean that we think of it as something less ambitious, but quite the reverse. It is by rejecting this idea that we lift it above human banality. Because of a lack of sufficient awareness, and also perhaps of a sufficient real knowledge of tradition, a problem which should have provided a stimulus to thought has been turned into a stumbling block. People took hasty flight to what seemed the safest position and felt that they thereby possessed dogmatic truth and peace. But by this oversimple method of preserving the gratuitousness of the supernatural order, they were, to put it mildly, lessening its meaning.
They were making it not merely an accident in the scholastic sense, which is understandable, but something completely accidental in the ordinary sense, and therefore, one must admit, something superficial. They were dooming themselves to see it as merely a kind of superstructure. It followed inevitably that man could not only have managed quite well without it, but that even now he could with impunity disregard it. It was deprived of any hold on human thinking or human existence. Christian thought was thus bounded by a narrow circle in a quiet backwater of the intellectual universe, where it could only waste away. By the good offices of some of its own exponents, who were aiming to preserve its transcendence, it became merely an exile. The price is heavy, but has the longed-for peace at least been gained by it? Far from it. Any repose of mind gained so easily can only be artificial. It does not express that harmony which can result only from overcoming opposition. Reason, which has been suppressed, will have its revenge all too soon by declaring that, in such conditions, the supernatural as presented to it, as forced upon it, is merely an illusion. In a hundred ways, it takes up again the cry of Sidger of Brabant. Let us discuss nothing of God's miracles for us when we are discussing natural things in natural terms. Let no reason be given for miracles. Some theologians may choose paradoxically to take up this same cry, though with the opposite intention, their aim being to protect the faith by isolating it completely. They may choose to blind themselves to the consequences of the premises they have themselves put forward, a philosophy apart and a theology apart are in strict correlation, both in history and in logic. It seems, Jacques Maritain has said, that in the time of William of Vere and of Charon, and later of Descartes, it was as though thinkers who were still Christian had thought up a purely natural man whose duty was to philosophize, and upon whom was superimposed a man with the theological virtues and a duty to merit heaven. As Pere el Malévez has rightly diagnosed, here lies one of the deepest roots of all that is negative in modern secularization. Who would seriously undertake to prove that the responsibility for this attitude and the more ambitious and more negative one that so soon followed it can be laid at the door of philosophers alone? Faith, too, could not be slow to protest against a system which mutilates the inheritance of tradition. All tradition, in effect, taking the word in its widest sense, passing from St. Irenaeus, by way of St. Augustine and St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure, without distinction of school, presents us with the two affirmations at once, not in opposition, but as a totality. Man cannot live except by the vision of God, and that vision of God depends totally on God's good pleasure. One has no right to weaken either, even in order to grasp the other more firmly. After a long eclipse, people have finally come to realize this. They have also heard in a thousand forms the objection provoked by a dualist theology. 
It is that for which several decades has given rise to a number of theories which set out to make room once more for that natural desire which the early writers spoke of. Their very diversity is an indication of the difficulty they find themselves in. It is equally an indication of a definite advance, both in original thinking and in a return to theological tradition. But all too often there remains the same timidity, the same impatient anxiety to eliminate every paradox from the human situation and arrive at a positive and clearly understandable result. So much so that this natural desire to see God, which they have been trying to reestablish, is twisted almost at once into a vague wish, a holy platonic prayer, quite inadequate for the work it should be doing. St. Thomas Aquinas conceived of a desire which, though not efficacious, was nonetheless radical, absolute, and in no sense conditional. His teaching about the situation of the damned further shows clearly how completely he dissociated the two ideas, efficacious and absolute, in his thinking. Yet, among the very people who were most anxious to return to the sources, there were many who soon came to envisage no more than some kind of velleity, totally contrary both to the language and teaching of St. Thomas. For though he knew the word veleatas well and used it in other cases, he never makes use of it in the many texts concerned with this particular question. And here again, the same can be said of St. Bonaventure, to whom an appetite of veleity, appetitus veleitatis, was an appetite for impossible things, appetitus impossibilium. Similarly, having referred to the well-known Thomist principle, the desire of nature cannot be vain, desiderium nature nequit esse inane, they water it down as far as possible and then, recoiling from its serene daring, try to relegate all its effects to the sphere of pure possibilities, leaving out of account all those texts which clearly assert the opposite. There is also the heroic, but to my mind more irrational, solution of consciously sacrificing a whole section of the traditional texts, even some of the most definite and clear, on the grounds that they cannot all be reconciled. This is what Pere Jacques de Blic did, for instance, when he spoke of a twofold teaching of St. Thomas, and set aside the texts which seemed to him apologetic in character retaining only those in which the vision of God appeared to him as placed above all natural desire. There are certain others who still do this, in the belief that it would be vain to try to reconcile two series of statements which seem to them contradictory. This, it seems to me, is to be too easily discouraged and over-fearful. I am convinced that Thomas' teaching on this point is essentially coherent, and I do not even see any need to reconcile the texts by recalling that this teaching is primarily a synthesis, a harmonizing of somewhat diverse tendencies, as Abbe J. Durantel recently declared. St. Bonaventure's comment on St. Augustine seems to apply rather well to St. Thomas here. One must not believe that so great a man contradicts himself, 
especially in matters in which he does not retract. It is one thing to fail to see how to reconcile two things, and quite another to suppose that St. Thomas himself was unable to do so. It is quite true that there are two series of texts in St. Thomas, but when they appear to contradict each other, which they do, even verbally, it is because they are concerned with two different orders. The first series is concerned with, for instance, the order of necessary connections, the second with that of free will. The first speaks of natural appetite, the second of an elicited act of desire, and so on. As for the two essential statements which people cannot see how to reconcile, for St. Thomas, as for the other authors, their apparent contradiction is primarily the effect of the object itself, whose contrasting elements it is impossible for our gaze to unify fully. In the association, coniuxio, of these terms, namely man and God, it is no wonder if the intellect of those who seek and introduce inconsistencies, inconveniencia, finds no rest. The chain of association cannot appear perfect from any side, and this from the internal meaning of the terms. The discussion involves the determination of form, habitudo, between finite and infinite, between nature and that on which nature totally depends and is altogether on the order of the unsurpassable. These reflections are given by Dr. Sestili in reply to the objection that if one must admit the existence of a natural desire to see God, the greatest disorder would follow in the intelligent nature. He takes them up again with increasing insistence in terms which it may be useful to read again now. Questions of this type cannot be settled by taking up the concepts as they are found in the terms of inclination and end of the same specific or generic nature. Here, haik, indeed the relative end, finis, or terminus, is the divine nature, which exists above and beyond all genus and species, and consequently these concepts, though they are true, are nevertheless analogic, and not univocal. Hence comes the apparent battle and the union of these orders of truth, namely in connecting capacity, possibility, natural appetite, with the insufficiency of nature and the negation of the exigency to see God. For in ascending to God, the attempt of joining the degree of nature with unsurpassable divine being fails, Likewise, in descending from the fullness and perfection of being, joining its degree with the insufficiency of nature fails. But the distinct truth of these orders is intrinsically evident. What then? Or should perhaps this truth be denied because the manner of the union does not yet appear evident? Not at all. That would be to cut the knot of science that cannot be fully loosed. The conclusion Dr. Sestili draws here is the same as my own, whether it be in the historical study of the theologians of the past, those he calls the doctors of the ancient knowledge, doctores antique sapientiae, or in one's own original theological work, it is surely better, if one cannot yet see the way to a solution, to hold both ends of the chain. 
But there is more that one can do, as I think I have made clear. Though one cannot reduce everything to the clarity of a simple vision free of all mystery, one can at least advance dialectically to the harmony which lies beyond the apparent opposition. And this will be easier if, taking the notion of God's transcendence with total seriousness, we stop seeing the call to the supernatural and the offer of grace in a chronological series, as though the second is governed by the first, as though God were bound by his own call once uttered and could not then recall his offer. The offer of grace expresses, in the sphere of moral liberty, the same act of divine loving kindness that the call to the supernatural expresses in the ontological sphere. Thus, there is nothing in the former to diminish beforehand in any way the gratuitousness of the latter. Neither is exterior to the other, and therefore neither comes before the other. There is always the same unique sovereign initiative at work in both. And the only difference lies in relation to us, because we are at once nature and liberty, an ontological tendency and a spiritual will. Those, however, who have decided that it is necessary to posit first of all a certain purely natural human order in which that call is not heard, go on to admit, not realizing that by doing so they are destroying the essential of what they want to save, that in the actual historical and concrete order, this call places God under an obligation in our regard by actually giving us a right, leaving aside the intervening problem of sin, to demand that he give us grace, and eventually, if we are faithful, the light of glory. Thus, not content with having imagined an order of things in which our relationship with the Creator might have been ruled solely by the laws of communicative justice, they seem to imagine those same laws as being the basis for the order we actually have, since God has made the decision to raise us up. Surely, for all they may say of gratuitousness, this in fact does away with it completely. Surely, too, it abolishes hope or at least makes it relate only to our present sinful state. For anyone who thinks a thing is his due does not hope, but simply demands. Surely this, as Fenelon said of a similar situation, is to destroy God's freedom in giving out his graces, to make the greatest of all graces merely a debt, and to confuse the order of nature with the supernatural order.